Uh, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. If you're a guest, we're studying 1 John this spring. John is writing to explain the difference between real and bogus Christianity. And he says, you can tell the real from the fake by three tests. What do they say about Jesus? Do they walk in the light? And how much do they love their brother? And he keeps writing in spirals and circles, coming back to these three tests over and over again, but especially to that third one. I think that's going to be very clear as we read, starting in verse 7. Listen and see if you can pick up what the theme of this text is. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Man went to see a doctor because he wasn't feeling too well. After a few tests, the doctor came back with some pills. He said, I want you to take this green pill every morning when you wake up. With a large giant glass of water. And then at lunch I want you to take this red pill. With a large giant glass of water. And then before you go to bed at night. I want you to take this blue pill. With a large giant glass of water. And the man said doctor. What is it? What's my problem? And the doctor said. You're not drinking enough water. <laughs> you see sometimes it's just not that complicated. When it comes to what we need the most. And John doesn't think it's that complicated. And so in 15 verses, we read the word love 27 times. Three different times he said, love one another. It's not that complicated. 
John, why do you talk about this test more than the other two? Why do you keep coming back to this? Why are you so passionate about the subject of love? I think John would say, because I am passionate about God. And God is love. You see, I want you to write something down that you think at first is going to be trite, but in fact, it is one of the most crucial statements about our faith. The phrase is, His love shows. And I'm saying today, it is the foundation of real Christianity. That before there were angels, before there were humans, or any other created beings, God is love. That love is not one of his attributes along with his mercy or his judgment or his wisdom or his faithfulness or his wrath. That his essence, his nature is love and all of his other attributes flow out of this. And so his wisdom is loving wisdom and his faithfulness is loving faithfulness. That everything God is and does comes out of his love, even his wrath. When God judges and when God punishes and when God disciplines, as every parent understands, he does so out of his love. That all of God's activity is loving activity. Why does this matter? Because no other religion in the world talks about God like this. Every other religion in the world says your relationship with God starts with you. And if you do this and if you do that well enough, then God will love you. Christianity is the only religion that says it starts with the love of God. That your love for God is a response that He made the first move. That we love because He first loved us. And not with a love that was philosophical and esoteric that you couldn't wrap your mind around. No, His love was concrete and visibly demonstrated in history with a specific Deed. John says this is love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 8. He writes, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Because of God's nature, because He is who He is, His love would not allow Him to do nothing when we were plagued with sin and death. And it's the same love that would not allow Him to do nothing that allows us to become something. See, what John says is this love that God initiated has to be imitated. He says, God loves you, and so you expect him to say, so you ought to love God. That's not quite how he puts it. He says, God has loved you, so you ought to love one another. Now, John is not implying that love is a virtue that's just innate in you. Or even that love is learned behavior. Even your ability to love is a response to the gift of God's love. He said, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God. So do you hear what he's saying? He's not saying, if you love enough, you get to be born again. He's saying, the only reason you can love at all is because you have been born again. Love comes from God. If there's any love in your heart, it didn't come from you, it came from God. How'd it get there? You've been born again. 
your ability to love is a product of your new birth. It didn't produce your new birth. That your growth as a lover is proof. It's evidence that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. That's what John means when he says, He has given us of His Spirit. Why? So that your nature could start to be like God's. Romans 5 verse 5 says, We know how dearly God loves us because He's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. Why has God come to dwell in us through the Spirit? Simple, to teach you how to speak His language. Because the only language God can speak is the language of love. And so He has sent the Spirit into your life to teach you how to speak God talk. And John calls this love being made complete. It's the basic ethic of the New Testament. The New Testament never ever teaches do and do and do and do and finally you'll become. The New Testament says God has made you something, now let it out. Be who you are. Release what God is at work in you to do. And so the Bible says God has poured His Spirit in you to teach you how to talk His language. And so what's going to happen when you start to become more fluent in love language? Three things, John says. Number one, as love grows, so does our confession of Christ. That he sees no tension between the love of God and the truth about the person of Jesus. And so look again at verse 14. We've seen and can testify the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God has God living inside. And that person lives in God. And so we know the love that God has for us and we trust that love. You see, some people are going to say, well, if you really love people, it doesn't matter what they believe. John says, no, by rejecting Jesus, you're electing to ignore the love of God. It was in Jesus that God showed you how much he loved you. And so nobody filled with the spirit of God, nobody learning to speak the language of God could deny Jesus. His love in me will not allow me to stay silent about the one who silenced my accuser when he died for my sins. And so as I am filled with the Spirit and the love of God, you're going to hear me talk more and more and more and more about Jesus. I'm going to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to testify that He's the Savior of the world, John says. And by the way, it's not just that He saved me from my sins. He saved me from myself. He saved you and me from a life of self-absorption. To understand that real life is about self-sacrifice. About ten years ago, there was a publishing phenomenon. A reporter named Mitch Alborn wrote this book called Tuesdays with Maury. Maury Schwartz was his college professor. He was dying of what we call Lou Gehrig's disease. So 14 weeks on Tuesday, he would go and spend several hours talking with Maury and gaining wisdom of this man that knew he was dying. And his reflections became this popular book. Now, on the eighth week, for some reason, they got to talking about a newspaper article where Ted Turner, the billionaire, was disappointed by his failed attempt to buy CBS. And he said in the article, 
I don't want my tombstone to read, he never owned a network. And so as Mitch and Maury talk, this dying man begins to reflect on what is life about. Is it about how much you acquired so that when you're dead, people can talk about how much you owned? Or is it about how much you gave away in your life? And I want to read to you from the book. This is what Maury said. I'm dying, right? Why do you think it's important for me to hear other people's problems? Don't I have enough pain and suffering of my own? Of course I do. But giving to other people is what makes me feel alive. Not my car or my house. Not what I look like in the mirror. When I give my time, when I can make someone smile after they are feeling sad, it's as close to healthy as I feel. Now, who does that sound like? Who's the one that said, if you want to really be alive, learn to die? Because if you spend your life trying to save it, you're going to lose it. Who's the one who said, I have come to give you abundant living? Jesus didn't come just to save you from your sins. He came to save you from yourself. He came to save you from a life that's all about you and how much you can get and how much you can acquire and how much you can make self the center of existence. He came to save you from that and to teach you it's the life of giving and sacrificing. It's the life of love. That's the only life worth living. And so to grow in love is to grow in confidence in the way of Jesus. And that's not the only way you'll grow. You will also grow in confidence when it comes to judgment. That the love of God doesn't just do something for us, it does something in us. That John says when love is perfected, fear is rejected. Look at verse 18 again. Where God's love is, there is no fear. Because God's perfect love drives out fear. It is punishment that makes a person fear. So love is not made perfect in the person who fears. In other words, if your life is full of fear, it means that God's love is not yet mature. You're still not speaking His language. That Fear is just the fruit, the real root, is that you don't trust God's love yet. That the only thing that can tranquilize a troubled heart is confidence in the love of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Because God knows all our lives we've been experiencing conditional love. We learned it as babies that people only love us as long as we do enough, look nice enough, speak well enough. And God comes along and says, that's not how I love. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. And so Jesus went to a cross to say to us, God's love for us is tenacious. It is not tenuous. You don't have it one day and lose it the next day. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. Death can't. And life can't. 
The angels can and the demons can. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brennan Manning, popular author, said there was this Irish priest walking in the rural countryside and he sees a peasant on the side of the road deep in prayer. And the priest is impressed and when the man finishes his prayer, he says to him, you must be very close to God. And the peasant smiles and says, yes, he is very fond of me. The person that can say that is mature in the love of God. When you can believe that God is especially fond of you. Anxiety is defeated as his love is completed in your heart. And you're going to hear him speak to your heart by the Holy Spirit. Reminding you that his love is tenacious. You're going to learn his language. And one more thing. As you learn the language of God, you know God believes that talk has got to become walk. And so as God's love grows in your heart, so will your concern for others. The same love that's going to cast out fear is going to cast out hate. It's going to cast out indifference. Because you understand you cannot adore God and ignore the image of God in other people. Or to put it this bluntly. You don't love me if you hate my kids. I don't care how flowery your praise is. How effusive your words are. If you hate my kids. You don't love their father. No matter how much you say you do. Paul says in Romans 13. You pay all your debts. Except the debt of love for others. You can never finish paying that. Now remember something. The Bible does not say that love is God. God is love. In other words, God is the definition of what love really is. Poets don't tell us about love. They're all messed up. So are the songwriters. So are the philosophers. So are the politicians. They don't know what love is. You want to know what love is? Look at God. And the Bible says God, when it comes to love, doesn't just talk the talk. He walks the walk. He demonstrates love because love is a verb. Love is an action. Sometimes we forget that. Maybe you heard the story of the couple that went off on their honeymoon. And when they got back, the mama called the bride and said, How did... She said, Mama, the honeymoon was so romantic, but ever since we got home, he's become a different man. He's using these terrible four-letter words every day. I can't stand it. Come get me and take me home, Mama. Mama says, that doesn't sound like him. What kind of words is he using? Mama, I don't even want to repeat them. They're so terrible. Just come get me and take me home. What kind of four-letter words is he using? Oh, Mama, words like wash, cook, dust, iron. (laughs) See, I don't think she understands... That love is not complete until it gets concrete. John says, you see someone who's hungry and has a need and you don't help him? Don't go to church and sing about how much you love people. 
Make it show up. Love's only received by God when you share it. And it can be shared because the supernatural supply of the Spirit is limitless. And so, let me say something kind of bold. I hear Christians say, well, I just can't love that person. Let me be real clear about that. That is biblically unacceptable. If the Spirit prompts you to love somebody and you don't, it's because you're disobedient. If you can not love somebody, there's only one explanation according to John. You're not a Christian yet. You haven't been born again. If you cannot love, you haven't been born of God. If you have been born of God, and you do not love, you are choosing to be disobedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, so call it what it is. If you cannot love, you're not a real Christian. A person that can't speak God's language hasn't been born again. A person who has been born again is always wanting to become more fluent in the language of God. There was a popular song on Christian radio this last year by Brandon Heath called Give Me Your Eyes. Here's the prayer of someone who wants to become fluent in God's language. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything that I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted. The ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. See, I want you to understand something. What John is saying is that God's love must flow through us. That He must love others through us. We're not just the objects of His love. We're the agents of His love. That God's love reaches its goal when it becomes visible. Look again at verse 12. No one's ever seen God. So how do we know if God is real? How is the world to know if God exists? Look what it says. No one's ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And His love has been brought to full expression through us. We are the answer to the world's question, where is God? God can only be seen when He takes on flesh and blood. And so God is releasing upon the world a new humanity empowered by His Spirit. To love the world back to its original intent. The college student was complaining bitterly to God as he saw all the suffering in the world. And he says, God, even I can make a better world than this. And God said, that's exactly what I want you to be doing. Make a better world than this. We are the loudspeakers through which the world hears the language of God. He must love others through us and John would say we must love God through others 
John is not afraid to be blunt. He says, if you say you love God and you're not loving people, you're a liar. That loving people is the preeminent way you love God. When they asked Jesus, what one thing does God want more than anything else? Jesus said, the only way I can answer that question is to give you two answers. Love God, love people. Look at verse 21. The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Here's why. Because you and I cannot give God anything He needs. But we can give Him what He wants. When we give one of His other kids what they need. Let me close with a powerful testimony of someone who understands that, who's become fluent in God's language. Her name is Pam Cope. She is the sister-in-law of my good friend Mike Cope, who's preached for a long time at the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. She was a housewife, ran a little beauty salon in New Osho, Missouri. And about 10 years ago, her world cratered. She and Randy had a precious 15-year-old son named Jansen. He had just come home from lifting weights at high school, getting ready for another season of athletics at his school. Laid down on the couch. His heart exploded. A previously undetected defect took his life. They buried their 15-year-old boy, and Pam thought she had buried her life. In lieu of flowers, they told people they could give money in Jansen's memory, and they would do something kind with it. They were going to buy soccer uniforms for the girls team but they turned out they didn't need the money they were going to buy some playground equipment but turned out that didn't happen they had some friends in Arkansas they heard were doing some work with orphans in Asia so they gave them the money that led to a trip to Asia and then another and then another working with orphanages there they wound up adopting two children and now they have some orphanages in Cambodia and in Vietnam including one they call Megan's house in honor of Mike's Severely handicapped and deceased daughter, Megan, for handicapped children. They have found life by giving it away. And then a couple of years ago, she's in New York City because her husband, Randy, is in the newspaper business and was there on a conference. And she's just reading the New York Times, and there on the front page is a color picture of a little boy in Ghana who was a slave. Parents in Ghana will take their children, they're so starve for income, and they will sell them to fishermen where they will work 15 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week under cruel conditions, made to dive under boats to untangle nets, beaten if they don't do enough and do it well enough. And she saw that picture of that little boy, and she couldn't get it out of her mind. One thing led to another, and she contacted some people at ACU that knew some Christian people there, and she arranged to get over there. And purchase that boy and six of his buddies and get them to a Christian orphanage. And they've started this foundation called Touch a Life now to help these kids get out of slavery. Ironically, Oprah Winfrey saw that same article in the paper and several weeks later she contacted the New York Times saying, I want to do something about it. And the paper said, you're too late. This housewife in New Ocean, Missouri has already taken care of it. <laughs> and Pam was on Oprah's television show and she's just released a book 
And recently she read a letter to some friends that she had written to young Mark. And I want you to hear it because I think you're going to hear the language of God. Dear Mark, if there's one thing I've learned in life, it's that time goes too quickly. Before we know it, in a blink of an eye or an irregular heartbeat, everything we have can be gone without a chance to even say goodbye. So I'm writing you this letter, just as I sometimes do for my other children, so you always know exactly where you stand. I will never forget how I first met you in a color photograph in the New York Times. Seeing how you looked then, I was so saddened for you and filled with a desire to help you. I thought at the time that that just wasn't possible. You seemed so far away. It's strange now to think about that. You've become such an important part of our family. It's almost like I can't remember a time when your artwork wasn't hanging on our wall. The first thing I see when I walk out the door to take the kids to school. I think I keep these reminders of you, not only so I can remember to write you a letter or give you a call, but to remind myself of everything you've taught me and the person you've helped me become. People say I rescued you, but Mark, I want you to know something. You've rescued me. You have taught me so many things about love and grace and courage about what it means to be and to have a family. You have changed my very idea of motherhood. I now understand that being a mother means that we make ourselves available to other children, regardless of where we live or the language that they speak. The first time I came to visit you, I remember watching you cook your pot of beans on an open fire with your roommates, the boys you now call brothers. To see you poking the fire with a stick and the way you embrace life as a normal six-year-old, you taught me that beauty truly does come from ashes. Everything and every life can be restored. You and I will always have the scars to remind us from where we came and what we've endured. As we both know, dark backgrounds help the diamonds shine even brighter. Watching you get excited about your bowl of rice in the morning and a clean glass of water You've taught me that life is the loveliest when it's the most simple. You've taught me how crazy I am to try and complicate it so much and to fill it with things that don't matter, with things that won't last, money, possessions, frantic schedules, self-absorption, and most of all, you have taught me the one thing I never thought I'd learn. Every single one of us, regardless of how bad it is, can overcome our very worst situation abuse, the loss of a mother, a friend, or a beautiful 15-year-old son who, when he left my world, I was sure that I'd never truly live again. You have helped me to live again. You make me want to tell your story so often and so many times that people know it by heart. I want them to want to help you or someone like you. Hopefully it'd be one of the 7,000 kids who are still enslaved, but maybe not. Maybe it's someone else, someone in their community, in their own house. Maybe it's just a decision to finally take care of themselves. I have so many more things to say to you, but for now I want to say this. Thank you. In finding you, I have found myself. I have found my mark. If you would like to know more about what Randy and Pam are doing for those children, there's a website in the bulletin you can check out.
I think love is becoming complete in her. My question for you and I, how fluent are we getting in the language of God? I'd like to ask you all to stand up. It's our custom at the end of a teaching to give people a chance to respond, and I'm going to give you a chance in two ways. I'm going to give you a chance to give your life to Christ in the act of baptism if you're ready to confess Christ. I'm going to give you a chance to give to the marks in our community and around the world. We're going to take up our offering right now. Can you take up an offering during an invitation song? Of course you can. Because the whole purpose of the invitation song is to ask you to give yourself to God. And so as we sing this song, we're going to give our servant Sunday offerings. And you've got a chance right here in this envelope to help another mark here and around the world. So we're going to sing, we're going to give ourselves to God in the act of baptism and in the act of giving our tithes. We're going to make a difference because we're learning to speak the language of God. If the brothers would go to the tables, uh, would you give us maybe just a couple of seconds to sing a few words of the song? And then if you'll start taking up the offering while we worship together.